Hello, everyone. Welcome to OT with DA. Back with Sylvia. And my name is David Ashrick. I'm the DA part of OT with DA. We are going to do our fourth supplemental session today. And on this Valentine's Day weekend, you're wearing red, reddish. That's right. What color is that? This is burgundy. Burgundy. Okay. When Jen was here, we were having a conversation about the difference between burgundy versus maroon yeah, versus wine, wine, violet, mm -hmm. and mine's kind of reddish. This is my DA That's with DA shirt. One of my favorite shirts. Do you have one of these shirts? I do. I have Woo! Two, two. You got the gray and the red. Uh, well, two reds and two grays. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. So we are so glad that you guys are here. We hope you're having an amazing Sabbath. We're recording this Maybe on the Sabbath. Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, if you're in Australia uh, or someplace on the other side of the international dateline. Happy first day of the week. But where we're at, it's Sabbath, and it's a beautiful day. Gorgeous. Yesterday, it was snowing, as we mentioned, and today, the sun is shining. There's hardly a cloud in the sky, and all of that beautiful snow is slowly starting to melt. Mm. So welcome, everybody. This is our fourth supplemental session, and I've mentioned this before, but I'll just quickly say by way of introduction that when I thought about doing OT with DA, I knew that there would be some important issues some things that we would want to go a little deeper on and that it would be outside of the scope of just the normal through chapter by chapter through Patriarchs and Prophets. And so I got this idea, hey, we'll have these supplemental sessions. If people want to tune in, they can. And uh, we've done one with Jen on uh, the trials and tragedies of womankind. One. Did you like that? Beautiful. Then we did Dr. Anthony Bosman, where we talked about God and math and science. Yeah, my dad also loved Anthony. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, that's like, great. Excellent. And then the last one that we did, the most recent one, was with Dr. Sean Pittman. We talked mm. about Genesis, evolution, the Amazing. flood, creation. And then, Sylvia, today, what are we going to be talking about? We are going to be talking about the book of Exodus as a love story. So we're going to see it through the lens of God as husband. We are familiar with God as a father, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. but this is a very unique and tender relationship, and it shows God's vulnerable vulnerability in a very uh, touching way. And mm. so, yeah. Okay, I, I like your point there, right at the outset, that we often, you know, God is so multi-dimensional. For example, just yesterday we talked about Jesus is our friend. Yes. So think about that. Jesus is our friend, and Jesus is our elder brother, and Jesus mm -hmm. is our Lord, mm -hmm. and God is He op occupies this you know, fatherly role to us. There's obviously very clearly uh, maternal characteristics in the Godhead. And so this is going to be fun. We're going to look at the relationship that Israel has and that we have with God through the lens of marriage. Right. Am I right? Absolutely. I'm excited. I'm, I'm fired up about this. And now just a little bit of introduction here, Sylvia. This is a particular area of interest for you because this is what you're studying. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So this is based on my uh, thesis, my master's thesis that I did um, at Andrews University with Dr. Davidson. And he was pressing me because basically I took a sanctuary class, which a lot of I think it's a required class that everybody has to take. And he's the sanctuary guy. Actually, uh, a lot of my ideas came from a book of his that just came out. We were in the class. We had to look at his original manuscript. OK. Uh, and then we had to give him back comments on that. And he's such a like, what's the book called? It's called, um, what's it called? A Song for the Sanctuary. Song for okay, the Sanctuary. beautiful. And we would look at it, and he was so humble that he's so open and willing, just like Moses with Jethro, right? He's like brilliant and yet willing to take all kinds of ideas or critiques. So <clears throat> uh, I decided to do three credits for the class, and so I had to write a longer paper. 
And uh, I was noticing going through this uh, sanctuary, the whole okay. process, that yep. there are so many Sinai meetings. Moses keeps going up, you know, ascending and descending, ascending and descending. And he I was, was a like, climber. Yeah, he was a rock <laughs> climber. Exactly. I used to have a shirt back in the day that said, some people describe climbing as a religious experience. And then on the back it said, ask Moses. <laughs> Unfortunately, the shirt wore out, but it was a great shirt. So anyway, Moses yeah. is going up and down, up and down, up and down, not recreationally. What's right. going on there? Right, right. Well, he's you getting a workout, it. but it's, it's a spiritual experience. And so there were seven specific meetings that I saw. So I started to exercise or to analyze each one of those. And when I wrote the paper, I had a few things there about the betrothal and a marriage uh, covenant between them. And Dr. Davidson's like, well, what do you see? Like, is this dating here? Is this is this the betrothal? Is this the marriage? And he was really pressing me to kind of finesse that element of mm. it. And so I decided to go deeper into it and really try to bring that out. Uh, and yeah, and then that was born. And it's actually, so the, the original, the formal title, if you were to look it up, is Towards a Biblical Spirituality, Dwelling with God Through the Sanctuary Covenant Structure. So That's a lot of syllables. It, it, it's long. <laughs> It's not pithy. So we're just calling it Exodus. A, a love, love story. story, which I have to say is a better title. I know it's yeah. not super academic or theological, but it's a better title. It's a I great agree. title. It's more catchy. So <clears throat> the short version here is, is that you were taking a class from Dr. Richard Davidson, mm -hmm. who we've mentioned on here before, just to remind you, he's the one, uh, when Jen and I were together, we talked about the book Flame of Yahweh, mm -hmm. which is a book that everybody <laughs> should own if you're serious about Bible study, because this is basically the definitive work on Old Testament sexuality. Yeah. And uh, think of it, you know, you can read it. He's a very good writer in the sense it's that amazing. it's accessible, yeah. but it's also just a great book, like kind of a reference book, a dictionary on every single sexual reference, even tangentially sexual reference mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. And so you're taking a class from Dr. Davidson. Mm -hmm. You write this paper. He says, hey, I want to ask you some more questions. You get interested. He gets interested. And then this you know, born. and I remember is that fair? This is fair. Yeah, I remember Jennifer. She was saying that she ran. She was uh, towards the end of her presentation. She was saying she ran into Dr. Davidson and told her that she was. He, she told him that she was interested in doing something in in ministry, specifically at the seminary. And he was like super and encouraging. Just, yeah, he said, "Whatever I have to do, I will move heaven and earth to make this happen for you." And he was like, "He's been like that. Any paper I've written, um, he it's full of exclamation points. Like he's." The exclamation point guy. In fact, I think they got. <laughs> I think they get rid. He says they they always uh, edit out my exclamation point. I'm the same way. Yeah. When I wrote my first book, the the editor came back to me and said, "You literally have used like five times the amount of exclamation points in this book that you should." And it's because I'm like, well, every one of those points so is exciting. really important, yeah. and I'm excited about it. So they had to like thin it down. So I'm glad Great. to hear that about him. He's an exclamation point guy, and he's so encouraging. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> from that. From that experience, uh, I want to share with you some of the things that I found out. But before, I want to give a little prelude, a little overview of why the sanctuary. So how does the book of Exodus bring out the sanctuary? But first, let's kind of go back and see what the sanctuary was about. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Davidson in his book, uh, Song of the Sanctuary. Well, I'm going to start with prayer. Are you, are you, you're right into I'm it? I'm jumping in. But let's you're ready know. to go. So welcome, everybody. We're so glad you're here. This is how enthusiastic she is. He's like, ready to go. In fact, yesterday, I don't know if you saw this on Instagram. The thing that I put up was... Someone who can keep pace with my enthusiasm. That's what I put up. So we're going to start with prayer. Welcome, everybody. We are super glad that you are here. By the way, just a quick apology. Um, the video that, that Sylvia and I did last night on chapter, was it 26, mm -hmm. uh, hasn't uploaded yet. And I tried to upload it again this morning, and I just got an error message. So I don't know. Mm. There's nothing wrong with the video, but something is happening in the uploading process. 
Big apologies there. As soon as this live session is done, I'll try to figure that out. And then we'll also start uploading this session. Then remember, we're back again tonight at 7 p.m. Uh, mountain time for our regular OT with DA session. So if you're looking for yesterday's video on YouTube and you say, I can't find it, it's I don't know what's going on. There was a problem with the upload, but I'll get it fixed. Okay, we're going to start with prayer and then we're off to the races. Let's do it. Father in heaven, so great to be here with Sylvia. And Father, most importantly, we feel so blessed to be here with your spirit and with your word. And Father, with our Instagram, YouTube community, Father, so awesome that we get hundreds of people live and then thousands watching in the days and weeks and months to come. And Father, we just feel so privileged to be interacting with one another and with your spirit and with your word. Father, help us to never take this freedom, this opportunity that we have for granted. Mm -hmm. And Father, especially on this Valentine's Day weekend, this is a weekend that, that at least here in America, we sort of celebrate romantic love and courtship and marriage. And uh, Father, that's what we're talking about in the book of Exodus. That's what we're going to learn, that there's, a, there's a, a love story going on here, a courting, a wooing. And so, Father, may that come through loud and clear. I mean, what better, what better thing to study on the Sabbath than your incredible love for your people, for your bride? Amen. And so be with us now, be with Sylvia, and may this be a great Bible study is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, Sylvia, you were about ready to kind of yes. get some introduction. So role of the sanctuary. So the sanctuary is not something a lot of people think that the sanctuary is just something that happened in the time of Israel. Then during the the church, uh, the you know the, the they had the sanctuary. They had the sanctuary in the wilderness. They had the sanctuary in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Or first, it was the Davidic temple that was built by Solomon. But we actually have a sanctuary that was prior to all of that, and that was the one that was mm. in heaven. So there was a pre-existing sanctuary that the Lord established and not man, and we're going to get to that, mm. uh, especially in uh, chapter 15 of Exodus. But before we get there, the two specific texts that bring out this element are Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Okay. And these two texts talk about the mount of the congregation. So it's where everyone would come together and congregate. Assemble. Assemble, yes. And Lucifer in particular, he was the anointed cherub, the covering cherub who would walk back and forth amidst the fiery stones. And so he had a specific sort of high priestly ministry. He had a high role. Um, and so what uh, Davidson points out, he says, before there was Soteriology, which is the the study of salvation. Salvation, yep. There was doxology, which is all about doxa or praise, the praise. Glory, right? The mm -hmm. glory of the Lord. People would come together and they would worship the Lord in his sanctuary. So there was no need for sacrifices or anything else. That there was came, no sin to forgive there because no there was sin. no sin. Exactly. There was no homartology. So basically, just a word on that, I, I, just yeah. a quick word on that, which I absolutely love, mm -hmm. is that if you can just in your mind's eye, like a little thought experiment, go back to the angels before sin, before rebellion, before Lucifer rebelled, and you were to ask them, is God good? They would have said unanimously, yes. Mm -hmm. You would say, yes, he's good. And he would have said, okay, on what basis do you affirm God's goodness? And mm -hmm. they could have said things like, well, he's made beautiful things. He created us. Mm. He music. I mean, you could have pointed to all of the sort of creative aspects. And mm. man, obviously God is good. Now, this is a really cool point. The angels knew that God was good prior to sin, mm -hmm. but nobody knew how good God was until after sin. Yeah. There was a depth of goodness, a depth of self-sacrificial love that was unknown and unknowable. We saw that in Calvary, the Calvary chapter, exactly. that until that moment, the angels had no idea exactly. of 
Yeah. So when yeah. you say that, that there was doxology before soteriology, that's just saying there was the praise of God, the glory of God for his goodness, his creative goodness. Mm -hmm. But now we understand through the science of salvation the depth of God's goodness, the profundity of his goodness. And we're going to continue to understand it through all eternity. Woo! It's something that on is inexhaustible. So we're just seeing the beginning glimmers of that, this now. So, so Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, which mm -hmm. these are the two like sort of major Luciferian chapters right. in the Old Testament. Yeah. Okay, keep going. I'll talk about the fall in heaven. I'm tracking with you. So the next thing that we go to is the fact that there was a break. So we've been studying in the patriarchs and prophets that there was creation and then there was the fall. And right after the fall, we get to the chapter there. Well, first, let's talk about creation. So man was created in the image of God. Okay. So there was perfect symmetry between God and man. And that was in three different elements. Uh, Dr. Davidson has also written a really great um, chapter on this. I think it's called, um, what is it called? In the image of God. But it, it's an Imago Day. Okay. What is man that you are mindful of him? I right. Think, I gotcha. think that's it. And you say um, there's three senses in which we're in the image of God? Yes. Yeah, so okay. there's seven that scholars have looked at, but those can be grouped into three different um, types. I'm so taking the, notes. I'm ready. The first is structural. And that means that we image God in our appearance and the way we look. We look to a degree. And some people I know would say, well, God's not a physical being. He's spirit. You know, he's truth. I believe when, when he says in chapter four of um, with uh, when he's with um, Nicodemus and he says God is spirit, he's trying to talk to him about spiritual birth and the importance of it. So this does not negate the fact that God is a person. You know, Ellen White specifically, she had this vision and she says, how is the father? And he says he has a, a form. He has a form. Yeah, he has right. some kind of an appearance by which he appears to people. The, the important point to bear in mind there is that when we say that God has a form, mm -hmm or that he has a, a, a bodily instantiation, the key thing to note is that we're not saying he's limited by that. Right. right? right. God condescends to come into the world of his creation. Mm -hmm. And obviously Jesus did that in the incarnation, mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the first point is structural. In structural. some yeah. physical sense, we bear God's image. Okay, that makes Correct. sense. Secondly, relational. So okay. the way that um, God is within his Trinitarian being, and this is where I... I, I referenced John Peckham's book on the love of God. Great um, book. Amazing book and amazing uh, research. And it's actually a summary of the PhD that he did, his dissertation, which he actually did with my dad. Following... Hey, John Luca, would you have me my glasses are sitting right there in front of that computer? Sorry, I don't have my reading glasses on. They're right to the left, to the left, to the left. Thanks, buddy. You've been cri criticizing I, well, me all no, day. Well, what's happening is, is that I was looking down. Why, is, why can't I see anything? Why can't... Oh, there we go. See, let, there can... be, let there be vision. I... <laughs> Thanks, I can buddy. be better long distance without my glasses. But so John Peckham wrote his dissertation, okay. and then he summarized it into this book that I recommend to everybody. And it speaks about God as a relational being full of empathy and passion and compassion. So he's not impassable, which is the traditional view of God as being simple and limited right. or, or, or experiencing no emotion, timeless. Exactly. But he actually has he's full of passion. And That's an incredible book. John yeah. Peckham's book, The Love of God. But it's not an easy book to read. Like if you're not yeah, a scholar, a that's a yeah. tough book to read. And if, in fact, immediately after I read that book, I reached out to John. I said, John, this book is incredible. You need to write a popular version. Of it. Oh, you told him. Absolutely. I was wow. like, and then we Thank were actually going to partner together and do that. And he's busy and I'm busy, but that book needs to be shrunk down so that everybody can understand it. Because the concept is so important. Yeah. Right. God as an accessible, emotionally accessible being. And that he's affected by us. Right? Correct. So it's a relational. Um, yeah, it's it's not, you know, unilateral. It's bilateral. It goes exactly. this way and that way. He loves and can be loved. 
And exactly. Yeah. And he's affected. So if we reject him, this is where we're going to see the vulnerability of God developed in the Exodus structure where God is pained when we turn away. Yes. From him. Unrequited love. So uh, then we have the functional. The relational is also the father son dynamic. Of course. So, and, uh, and then the functional has to do, I call it in my uh, uh, study, I call it the missional. And we're going to see that when we get to Exodus chapter three. But those are the three basic ones. And functional has to do with the stewardship that we've been given to tend, yeah. to keep, to uh, minister to creation. Um, Can I just say something yes. about that? When I do my Arise Online classes and I talk about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 prior to Genesis 3, I use a series of words to sort of describe uh, God's ideal situation for humanity. And, and one of them, it's that they're free, they're fallible, mm. they're functional, and they were made to flourish. And the idea of that. functionality... You're in alliteration. I love alliteration. alliteration. I'm, I'm wired that way. But I just love the idea that that God gave them things to do that he could have done, yeah. right? Like God could have just kept making people out of the ground. Yep. But he says to them, now you be fruitful and multiply. And God could have tended the garden. He could have inbuilt to the plants a sort of you know, biological technology where they didn't need to be pruned. They didn't need to be harvested. Mm, that's true. But God has us do everything that can be delegated. Yeah. God delegates. He does. So we're functional. Okay, so number one, structural. Number two, relational. Number mission. three, functional. It's not just function, and we're going to get to that more, but the idea of mission is that we serve the creation. We have, Amen. you know, Ellen White says, I think it's in the beginning of uh, the introduction to Desire of Ages, she says, everything ministers, all life, yeah, you know, from the lowly blade of grass, it ministers and gives life. It is only the selfish heart of man that only wants Li to see. Lives to itself. Lives unto itself, yeah. So, I love that. Okay, I'm so, with you. So we see that those are the three Imago Dei structures or categories, and so... The, the idea is that the second one specifically, so man continued to resemble God in his outward appearance, even though yeah. there was degradation, there continued to be some sort of sense of stewardship over the creation, even okay. though it was, it began to be um, abused. But the main thing that, the reason that became abused is because the central element of relation was broken. There was right. a major um, chasm and schism that happened there. And so all of a sudden, now there needs to be a new religion. And actually, religion is the religare, which is to relink the, the God-man connection. And that's what the, um, when we studied uh, Jacob's Ladder, yep. that, that is the All the way down link. to the ground, all the way up into the heavens. That is the connective link. And the goal is to be once again in face-to-face -face communication with God. Hallelujah. So this is, we see this in John 17, where Jesus says, no longer, I am no longer in the world. This is the last thing he says before he goes off to be um, taken prisoner. Uh, he says, but Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they mm. may behold my glory. He's already envisioning himself after this whole process is over in the heavenly sanctuary, being up and ascended into heaven, but he doesn't want to be separated from his people. And so his prayer, his longing prayer is that we may be with him and behold his glory. And that's the whole structure of Beautiful. Exodus is the beholding of God's glory. And we start to see that in the burning bush with the appearance of the flame. And um, it's, no, it's no coincidence. In fact, it's the great climax that when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, the punchline of the whole narrative yes. of scripture is that God is with us and we will dwell with him and the temple of God is with man and we will see him face, face to, face. to face. That's the punchline, right? And you'll wipe every tear. So that relational, mm -hmm. so the structural is retained, but it's improved. Mm -hmm. The functional is retained, but also improved, but the relational is completely rehabilitated. Yeah. With I love Christ. it. So that okay. brings us to uh, the way in which it's going to be relinked, the way in which that healing is going to take place. And we looked at this as well before, but we're going to briefly look at it again. In Genesis 3.15, we 
which is the Proto-Evangelion. So it's the first original gospel message that's given right after Adam and Eve sin, before there's any sort of condemnation. It's not really condemnation, but consequences there for their action. There is going to be a promise. And the promise, there, it's a twofold promise. First, there's going to be enmity that's put. So that's um, the, so now there was friendship. We are all, basically, we, we take on um, this connective, ontologically, we're connected to sin. We're, we're sinful right. beings. And we're children, uh, Jesus says, you know, your father, the devil, right? So those that continue to cling to that natural predisposition for right. selfishness continue to be children of the devil. In so, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you being evil, evil right? Yeah. He doesn't say if, if you acting evil, no. behaving in evil ways. He says, yeah. no, you, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more how your much father more. in heaven. So Amen. I love your point there that at sin, it was not just a garment that we put on. It was not just a veneer that covered an otherwise... No, no. Our our whole nature was yes. transformed to be inwardly bent yep. towards selfishness. If you look at Romans 8, so Romans 8 <laughs> where it talks Don't about... Don't get me started on Romans. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit, right? So there's we become by adoption children of God. So the first stage of that adoption is that we cry, Abba, Father, right? Amen. The second stage is the one that we need to be transformed because the whole creation is groaning even after the adoption into sonship. Yes. There's the groaning of creation even more because we realize the glory from which we fell. So there's a greater desire to be made even in our, that's also Romans 7, right? Mm. To be made, um, to be aligned with the desire that we have in our hearts. And so, but that only in a twinkling of an eye, we have to wait, right? So we are, we are still mm. in this tent and we are encumbered by it, but we have the hope. And so in our mind, although we are pilgrims on this earth, we, we see the promises afar off, we embrace them, and we confess that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. So first is the enmity, and this is the uh, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the wooing, the drawing that we have seen. You know, we're going to see in chapter 19 of Exodus, I have drawn you to myself. Yes, I've carried yes. you on eagle's wings, eagle's and I've wings. drawn you to myself. So that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the crushing, so the second element, uh, I will put enmity between thee and the, the woman and between your seed and off seed. Your, uh, your yeah, seed you. and her seed, uh, it will crush your head and you will bruise its heel. Right. So there's the crushing that's going to happen. This is the work that's accomplished by Christ. And this is something that happens irregardless of anything we do, right? Amen. So this is this is God's unilateral promise. He will accomplish this. This is his role. Our role is to accept the enmity. And this needs to happen daily. The wooing of the spirit, calling out his uh, job we learn later in John uh I think it's 16 that he says uh, he will come to you, the comforter, and he will convict you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so until you have that, you don't know that sin is sin. You're not aware of it, but he's every single person is being wooed by the Holy Spirit. So just a quick word yeah. on that. The way that I like to say that is the word enmity here just means hatred or mm -hmm. antipathy, right? So we are born with an enmity against God. I mean, yeah. Paul makes this really clear in Romans 7 and 8. But when we are born again, God puts this embryonically inside of us and yeah. we begin to have a transformation even of nature yes where we no longer have a hatred for the things of god yeah. we begin to have a love for the things of god and there's a struggle within us between competing natures yeah the natural nature and the supernatural nature we're born again and paul describes this in romans chapter seven, seven. and we can we're never going to get you never get to the place here no. in in this life where you're like I made it. Mm -mm. There's there's not there's nothing it's in more, me. But I feel it's more. Like it's true. I feel like the closer I get to God, I notice the sin in me so much Correct. more. Like it almost becomes small things become magnified and true. so I just cling to him. It's like, "Lord, I have a new day. 
Like, I'm going to see this person. I'm going to do this. Be with me. Be with my words. Give me wisdom that yes. I won't hurt people. Sometimes we do things mm. and say things, not trying to hurt anyone, but we're not careful. We're not cautious. We don't know the message the person needs. You know, Jesus says, uh, my servant who will find. So when he comes, who will be the servant who I will find feeding his family in due season, right? right? So the idea that we have the word of God, <clears throat> but we need to share that with our family, oh, with amen. our friends. And so this feeding needs to take place. So now we've come after the um, Proto-Evangelion of Genesis 3.15, yep. where this promise is given. Then we go from Adam to Babel, and that sets up the Abrahamic promise, right. that seed, land, blessing, and having to get away, right? We need to leave Babylon, or of the get out. get out and be separate. And so this is the same thing that we're going to see in Exodus, that they need to get out in order to fulfill seed, land, and blessing. Okay. Um, and the blessing, again, is including the whole world. So when we get to that, basically, Genesis as a whole is setting up Exodus, which is before with Abraham, we have one person that's being called upon, and he's going to all of a sudden have this posterity. But the posterity, to a degree, is fulfilled in Exodus, because we see there, I forget in which chapter, it says now they are as a sand of the sea. I think it's when they're at the beginning. He says it several Pharaoh. times. Yeah, it's yeah. in 12 and then again in 15. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So the sand of the sea. So this is being fulfilled, but the blessing aspect is still not given. Mm -hmm. And so this is what <clears throat> we're going to see now. So now you just made a great point there that I, I want to just slow that part down so that yeah. everybody gets that. In many ways, obviously, Moses, as the writer of the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, he's writing with intention, right? Like he was a master legislator, a master writer, a master philosopher mm -hmm. and poet. And so when he's writing, he's writing with intention. He's trying to get us somewhere. And Genesis 1 to 11 gets us to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant and the unfolding of Abraham's family gets us to Exodus. Yes. So this is a really cool way to think about Genesis. Genesis is the preamble, mm -hmm. or the, the theologians would say the prolegomena mm -hmm. for Exodus. Yep. And I think you're going to tell us here in just a moment that Exodus is widely regarded as yes. the book. Correct. Is this a time to say You've that? I've been reading my notes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I just, I know where we're going here. So tell us about that. So exactly right. So the commentators, again, this is the Richard Davidson's new SDA Bible commentary on, um, on Exodus. And he says that as a whole, this is all biblical scholars in general, liberal or conservative, whether Jewish or Protestant, Christian, they believe that it is the most important book in all of scripture, the most important book. And why? Well, in it, we see that God reveals to Israel, he gives them his special name, special deliverance, special guidance, special covenant, special worship, mm. special mercy, and special self-description, which is our next point. So it is a unique now, and I've been watching it today. If you guys have a chance, also go to um, to Ty's uh, channel there. Yeah, doing, Kingdom Manifesto, yeah, why don't story, you, uh, the Storyline story YouTube channel. So today it was part four. If you're following along, that's excellent. We're doing a 10-part walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, today we dropped part four, which is titled... Um, I, th I think it was another one of the but I say, but okay. I say part two. And what is but I say? So you have heard that it was said. Now, <clears throat> what's happening there is that it's a kingdom. It's entitled, it's a kingdom manifesto is what you're saying Jesus did. But right. the, the original kingdom manifesto took place in the book of Exodus, Exodus. in the giving of the law. And before the self-description of God, um, uh, as he plays it out, right? Because when somebody says the sanctuary covenant, or if you talk about the sanctuary, you isolate it. And there's no isolation. It's embedded, the entire fabric of the sanctuary is embedded into the covenant, to the name of God, the revelation. Uh, and we're going to see that right now. For that, I'm actually going to 
open my Bible. And While you do that, I'll yeah. just read. Just uh, remember the very last paragraph that we read yesterday in uh -huh. our session from the Red Sea to Sinai. I mean, just listen to this. Here, so they've arrived at Mount Sinai. Remember, she paints that beautiful picture. Yeah. The dawn gilded the dark ridges of the mm. mountains and the sun's golden rays pierced the mm. deep gorges, uh, seeming to these weary travelers like beams of mercy from the throne of God. Just a few sentences later, she says these words. Here at Sinai, Israel, and I would add, and the world, yes. Israel was to receive the most wonderful revelation ever made by God to men. Oh. So good. This is a revelation of God, of his name, of his word, of his sanctuary, of his plan, of his law. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what's, that's why they're going to be there for a year. Mm -hmm. And so when you say that there's a case to be made, a biblical scholarly case to be made for the fact that Exodus is the most important book in the Old Testament, and it's the archetypal book of the entire scripture, Old and New Testaments, that should really settle in your mind for those of you that are really keeping track here. Like Exodus is formative. Mm -hmm. yep. Right, it just sets the tone. Genesis sets up Exodus, and Exodus sets up the rest of Scripture. Correct. Woo. Yeah. And if you go when Jesus came, remember he was on the mount, um, on the road to Emmaus, and there's these two disciples, Cleopas and another one, who come up to him. Yeah. And he yeah, says, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. "What are you guys talking about?" He says, "Oh, do, you know, don't you know?" And Jesus says, well, tell me. And he says, but you slow of heart, you know, and, and faith. fools to believe all fools. that the prophets have spoken. Uh, yeah. And he's been beginning at Moses and the prophets. He explained to them everything that was written in, in the Pentateuch, basically concerning himself. So it says in the law, in the in the uh, in Moses, in, in the, the Psalms, Psalms mm -hmm. and in the prophets. Yeah. And in the prophets. So I think earlier there's two, two, two places he says it. The first is just the law and the prophets. And the second one, he includes the Psalms because we know there's so many right. Psalms that uh, are messianic. So going to Exodus, and we're going to get to Exodus 15, because I, uh, I thought you were going to go there. I'm like, you're, you're, you're no, no, I'm, I'm tracking with you. You're, you're out in front and I'm, I'm, um, you're, I'm happy to follow. You're, yeah, no, you're, you're doing awesome. So um, here we are, Exodus. Exodus three. So, um, this is the, the burning bush. So Moses comes and he's walking around and all of a sudden there's this bush. He notices it. Now, many times there are glorious things and God is trying to call our attention to something and we walk right by. Hmm. What would have happened if Moses had kept walking and right. ignored the bush? So we have a lesson there. And because God was not in the fire, hmm. God was in the words. Because if Moses had walked by, he would have not been aware of anything, right? But he stopped to look. He was interested and he was curious. And because of that, um, so it says here, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. What verse are you in? So chapter three. Yep. Uh, and this is verse, uh, I think, two. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so Horeb. So now we come to the mountain of God. And basically what I do is I look at all the mountains and uh, I'm going to intersperse a little bit more than just the mountains here, but I'm going to point out the mountains because that's where the relationship takes place. Sinai is essential to the covenant and it actually becomes. So when you get to the, the sanctuary, it's actually a moving Sinai. So the experience of the revelation at Sinai. So, uh, Angel Rodriguez has written an article where he um, he likens the, the structure of the mountain to the most holy place being at the top, the holy place being where Moses and or the uh, priests could the, come up. The, the elders could the come elders up. The elders of Israel, the 70 elders, and then everybody else was kind of uh, outside In the courtyard. The courtyard. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. I like it's, that. It's the uh, mountain of God. And so God appears to him and he refers to himself. First, he says, do not draw near. Take off your sandals. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face. You know, he was afraid to look at God. 
God says, I've seen the oppression of my people. Mm-hmm. I verse have seven. heard their cry. Verse seven, yes. And I know their sorrow. So there we see the empathy. So first he goes to the Oh, past. that's good. I like that. Yeah. So this is actually, and I, I don't I don't want to get too far into it, but the foundation of my research was my dad's dissertation. So my father has written a very seminal work that's entitled Time and Timelessness as Primordial Presupposition. So um, it's a critique of theological reason. And my father's name is Fernando Canelli. And he did his entire dissertation basically on the revelation of God in chapter three of Exodus verses 14. He does, he looks at the whole thing, but especially 14. And I had tried to read it many times and I could not wrap my brain around what my dad was saying because it was too <laughs> philosophical. So I've read, I've read uh, three of your dad's books and uh, they are not for the faint of heart. No, it's, it's, <laughs> I, there, I just couldn't. I'm like, okay, maybe in another decade, I'll understand it. And then I was translating this um, philosophy book uh, that I was, a friend of mine was, um, he became a friend as I was doing it. His name is Raul Kurz. And he was putting together this, um, so it was a hundred pages. He's looking, it's a deconstruction. It's a book on deconstruction, which basically looks at the presuppositions of the, um, both the church fathers. So he goes from the pre-Socratic philosophers in this particular book, pre-Socratics to the time of the Reformation. And he looks at all the church leaders at all the philosophers during there, and he examines their presuppositions. So their macro hermeneutical presuppositions. So we have um, uh, hermeneutics is basically how you understand something. And we understand things based on presuppositions that we have. What we bring to the, we all have an idea of, there is no view from nowhere. Right. Right. Everybody's standing somewhere looking through some set of lenses at something. Right. Okay. So far, so good. So this was your dad's research is what you're saying. No, no, no. This this is the book that I was translating. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And so he had a chapter there on biblical presuppositions, like what is the foundation? And for that, it was basically based on my dad's book. So as I'm translating the book, I have to go back to the original. So I'm not translating from Spanish in something that's not, you know, faithful to the original. So I have to go to the original. And as I was reading it through his lens, so Raul Kerbs is describing it with his words and then quoting my dad and through his description I was able to see my dad's work in a new way. Oh, that's cool. And this is that would have been a very cool experience. It was, it was surreal. You know how oh, you talk about like how that. you like doing the D with A with DA because there's something new that resonates with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some, somebody will say something, you're like, okay, I didn't see it in that light. And then it'll work in your mind and then you'll produce something new. Yeah, totally. And this is what happened to me. And all of a sudden, the, the lights, oh, your that is so went cool. on. I didn't know that story. Yeah. And so I immediately wrote, and the first paper that I wrote for my master's thesis, it got published. It was actually published in a, in a fresh script for my dad. Uh, on Martin Luther, which I think it's one of my favorite things that I've written. But anyway, so that has become the foundation for understanding the nature of God. Uh, and mm. for those of you that are eager beavers, I highly recommend that book. It's it's one of the most, um, to me, seminal works. Um, this is I, your dad's book. This is my dad. And he's, he has several, and I, I love them all. So so this is God. And so he what my dad says when we're looking at the, the, the nature of God, so the structure of God's person is that he's historical temporal. Yeah. He's involved. This in is our, like the centerpiece of your dad's thinking. Right. So before, typically, the God of the philosophers was a God, a God that was, it, he was removed. He was simple. He was, he was not engaged. He did not care. You know, at most, perhaps things just happened because there was some kind of predestination. Right. So people who say, well, if it's meant to be, it's going to happen. Some kind of, this is, this comes from that understanding. It's very hard. And this is just to sort of simplify it. It's very hard and this is one of your dad's major points, and it's your point as well, it's very hard to take that Greek Hellenistic view and some schools of Protestantism view and make any sense of passages like this, where he says, uh, we just read a moment ago, um, 
I know their sorrows. Mm -hmm. It's hard to make sense of the sort of Hellenistic view or this detached, impassable view of God and read passages like this. And we say, whoa, 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 whoa. But that doesn't sound right. Well, yeah. It sounds like he's deeply emotional. He's deeply invested. It's totally, yeah. He, and this is the point that Pekka makes in his book, mm -hmm. is that when you actually analyze the biblical text, when you come with the presupposition of what does the canon of Scripture teach, we actually find that God is, if we take away all those Greek, you know, importing of those Greek ideas, God is amazingly invested, yeah. amazingly caring, not only loving, but, but lovable. lovable. Mm -hmm. I yeah. love it. So he yeah, says this here, hey, I have seen the affliction of my people. I, I know their sorrows. Is, know is their that Yadah there? Yadah, I, I don't have my Okay, here, I just I was, wonder. I would say absolutely. I know I'm intimately acquainted yeah. with, because the, the word for sexual intimacy that is very often used in the Old Testament is Yadah, mm -hmm. right? So Adam knew his wife. And so to know is to not just know intellectually, cerebrally, it's to be intimately acquainted with. And I'm not sure that this word is that word here, but the idea is, is that no, I am acquainted. Yeah, yeah no, it's, not, it's not urgent no, that we it, do it, it but it's just... Be. Yeah, no, it has I, to I mean, be. can you do it like quick smart? I can. Do it, quick smart. That's what they say in Australia when they say something real quick smart, right? Real quick. So the, the, the portrait here that is being presented is God reveals himself to Moses because, and I've already mentioned this in the OT with DA several times, that this is an emerging monotheism. And not only an emerging monotheism, but they're becoming increasingly acquainted yeah, with God. Yeah. yeah, okay, so it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're becoming increasingly acquainted with who this God is, mm. right? Like they're all seeing through shadows and through, you know, mm -hmm. smoke and mirrors, and God is giving increasingly clear revelations of himself. And in Exodus at Sinai, it's going to be sanctuary, law, name, mission, like it's going to be a fire hydrant of knowledge Absolutely. about who God is. Absolutely. Okay. So um, let's let's jump ahead. Let's go to, um, oh, I was just going to point out that the self-revelation of God becomes the foundation from which every single petition for forgiveness and in, in all the remaining of Scripture, we're going to see that. And I just have two examples here. Daniel 9, okay. uh, Daniel 9, 4, he says, Then I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love right. and mercy. Correct. Um, again, Nehemiah 9, you know, we've sinned, you know, our ancestors have been stiff-necked, but you are a forgiving God, Correct. gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So, yeah, the appeal is always to God's covenantal nature. Mercy, yeah. Yep. His mercy, the fact that he's promised to keep covenant with creation of which we are a part. Exactly. Beautiful. beautiful. Oh, we both just said beautiful Yay. at the same time. <laughs> So now we go proper into Exodus, a love story. And first, I want to talk about the imagery of God as husband. So um, in the book of Flame of Yahweh of Davidson's, he says that in ancient Near Eastern texts, you know, they're all talking about their deities and how they relate to them. But the deity is never portrayed or depicted as a husband Interesting. Uh, or there's no covenant relationship. There's absolutely no covenant relationship with his people. But the Bible clearly portrays absolutely. Israel entering into a covenant relationship. So there's a few texts that we're going to look at very quickly to see how this happens, because even though we don't see it in Exodus, there's no place where God says, I am your husband. It sets the stage for everyone looking back and saying, well, obviously, this is who God is. Uh, and we will see because the preeminent, um, uh, I won't say virtue, the characteristic, the um, attribute of God in the book of Exodus in his name, the revelation of his name is his jealousy. I am a jealous oh, God. Oh, interesting. And that shows because you're mine, Ooh. you're mine. Uh, so let's look. Isaiah 54, 5 says, for your maker is your husband. 
Isaiah 54, 5? 54, 5. Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so you shall rejoice. So your God shall rejoice over, over you. you. Yeah. Jeremiah 2. I remember, this is when he's recounting his relationship with Israel. God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And then it continues to describe Israel's unfaithfulness in terms of, of harlotry oh, you've got Ezekiel or adultery. There, of course. And then Ezekiel 16, where he says, and this, the whole chapter is devoted to That's imagery. one of the most beautiful passages in all the Old Testament, oh, yeah. Ezekiel 16. And it has a lot of um, biblical, well, Davidson says sexual images. But no, it's in, this, true. in this particular case, he says, I passed by you again and looked on you. You were of the at the age for love. I spread the age of the edge of my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. Mm. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God. And this is you clearly marriage. Became mine. Yes. Also the covering. There's, yeah, there's of course. the idea of you you become mine because I cover your sins. And then Hosea 2, the entire book of Hosea pretty yeah, right. much is all about. Uh, so chapter two, God portrays is portrayed as the husband and also the plaintiff in a legal proceeding against his wife. God does not seek divorce. He seeks reconciliation. In verse 14, he says, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, mm. as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, which we can, when we look at the song of Moses, we'll see that. Mm. And then verse 16, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. In Hebrew, that's Ishi, and no longer my master, which is Baal. So it's very interesting. Well, that is so beautiful. So husband, uh, actually, Ish is 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 man. Right. And so when you say it's my Ish or my or Ishi, my my husband, it implies husband. Uh, whereas Baal can mean husband, but it can also just mean master. Now, Lord That's why or master. Lord or master. Yeah. So just in case everybody didn't get those scriptures, Isaiah fifty four five, Isaiah sixty two five. Jeremiah 2, 2 to 3, the whole of Ezekiel 16, mm -hmm. and then Hosea 2. 14 and 16 specifically. Yeah. So a number of passages here. And what's really cool about these passages I was noticing is that what the prophets are doing is they're looking back retrospectively and saying what was happening with God and Israel was a wooing, yeah. was a marriage, yeah. right? So, so even though we don't have that ex exact express language in Exodus, I think this is your point, the way that the rest of the Old Testament prophets and writers understood what was happening in Exodus was through this covenantal marital relationship. Exactly. Okay, good. Exactly. Very good. Good summary. So, I love the point about jealousy, too. Oh, that was because I, I used so cool. to Luke is here. He can attest to my, my <laughs> Hey, we jealous. have a jealous husband in the no, room. No, no, no. He's the least jealous person ever. I was jealous. Oh, you were jealous. Married. Okay. You were a jealous wife. I, I was. And so I understand that it can be, but God's jealousy is very different. Actually, the word is, um, it's it means zeal. So it's uh, kana. kana. Mm. Uh, and so it just, it means zeal or uh, it can be jealous. So in his particular case, he's justified in being jealous because he knows what's going on in her mind. Like usually a jealous husband or wife is suspicious. Right. Great point. And they kind of, you know, like they're creating the reality that you're right. afraid of. And then they they ruin the relationship. They're intimating something that might not be there. Right. You're trying to read the mind. It's like, well, what, but God it? knows the mind. But God knows the heart. And he, he searches. Ooh, he searches that's a the great heart. point. Yeah. I'm so I hope everybody picked that up. That's such a great, subtle little point that God's jealousy is not an assumed departure from faithfulness. It's a known departure from faithfulness right. because he doesn't have to imagine that we have a secret lover. This is why he says things in the Old Testament like, I know what you're doing in the groves. I know what you're doing yeah. on the mountains, yeah. right? Like, 
you know, you can't, I know what you're doing and I'm jealous about this. I'm zealous for you. Exactly. Oh, that's a great point. I love that insight. Okay. Yeah. So now we get to Exodus three and that's, we kind of looked at it before and that's, now we're going to look at the parallels between uh, the marriage relationship and that dynamic and what's actually happening, happening in the rest of the book of Exodus. So now we can look at Moses as the go-between or the mediator between God and we'll call it the girlfriend or the girl that the beloved, the one he loves. And so that's Israel. So that's Israel. So God his is people. his people. And so he's the suitor and he's going to, in, in order for the bride to become interested in him, he has to reveal who he is, right? Who shall I say has sent me? Has, right? So Moses right. asks God and God says, I am that I am. And that's, that's actually the parallelism that my dad has. And he shows that the compassion of God, there's, there's three elements, again, that he's analogically temporal, he's relationally loving, right, mm-hmm. or lovingly relational, and then he's passionately missional, because one of the deviations in the parallelism there in chapter 15, that's somewhat different, because it's all the same. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Second parallelism. That's the foundational one, the second one. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am, which is kind of the same, yeah. has sent me to you. So now we have the sending. And then the third time, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, so the God of the fathers has sent me. So there's this sending, this mission that's happening of God, right? So God is sending someone for a purpose to bring love and harmony with him. Yeah, the thing that occurred to me there is this is not unlike what Abraham did with his servant Eliezer to go go and bring a bride, not to himself, but to his son. Exactly. I love that imagery there. And and I have to be honest, I hadn't thought about Moses as a go-between. Moses running errands Mm -hmm. between the the groom, the groom-to-be, God, and the beloved. Yes. Right? So he's, he's sending... Well, who is it that wants me to come? Well, I am that I am. Mm-hmm. So this is just the beginning of the love story. Right. And I suppose, you know, uh, when you are striking up a re- relationship with somebody that you're prospectively interested in, you you go up and introduce yourself, or maybe you send a text nowadays, or you would write a letter. Mm-hmm. You're initiating contact. Yes. God here is initiating contact with his people, with his beloved, through Moses. Exactly. Okay. I love it. Exactly. And, and, and the compassion is the preeminent uh, attribute. So I am sending you... In order, so he's the avenger. We're going to see this in the song of Moses and the second song of Moses, especially. God is a God of war, the first psalm, and that's uh, the song that we have in Exodus 15. And then Deuteronomy 32, there's the second song of Moses. And there, that's one of the most beautiful ones. And we're going to, hopefully we'll we'll touch on it. But there it shows God is an avenger. But God also as the atonement, he's the atonement for the Gentiles. Mm. It's it's incredible, which is what That's the whole thing 32. is. Deuteronomy okay. thirty-two, the, the very climax uh, or the end of it. So now we're going to go to the next section. So after the people say, "Okay, this is what God wants," now there's the plagues that we've looked at, and that's basically what okay. I like to call the showdown of the suitors. So now we have two people that are vying for the affections of the bride, right, or the bride to be, the um, the girl, the beloved, and so you have the gods of the Egyptians. And their powers, and, and this would basically be Satan, right? He's the one that's working. The demons that they worship are the ones that are trying to vibe. Satan wants to lure us away from God. Yeah, really And God is. is trying to lure us away from Satan. That's great language. I hope you guys are taking notes on that. The language that you used was the showdown of the suitors, mm-hmm. right? Like both are vying for the affection and the loyalty mm-hmm. of Israel. One through force and oppression and coercion, right? That's Satan. And then the other through freedom, deliverance, love, yeah. 
He's wooing them to himself. Mm -hmm. Okay, love it. So and they're kind of both flexing their muscles. Exactly, and that's what I was saying. You know, usually when you're you're looking, like say a girl, it's like, well, this guy's kind of, you know, he's a good catch. He's he makes this much money. You know, he'll make a good provider. And the other one's like, oh, but this one is more loving or more affectionate. And so mm. you're kind of saying, okay, well, which one is the one that makes most sense? And here, God actually he hands down wins the uh, the showdown. And so all of a sudden, there's this great climax that takes place. Uh, first of all, there's the Passover. Right. Uh, there's two climaxes, the Passover of the justification, where God recounts his love. Uh, well, actually, again, we can look at Ezekiel 16, where he says that, um, I passed by you again and looked on you. And he said, I spread my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. So that's the justification that takes place. That's what happened at Passover. Right. He the literally pulled the cloak of his grace and his mercy over Israel. Yeah. That's the that's the point you're making. That's exactly I like right. That point. So the justification that took place at um, at Passover is the first climax and the covering, and the second one is the Red Sea crossing. Uh, and then we can call this. It's funny. My daughter's like, put a put a trigger warning if you're going to say this. But basically, that we could also, in our analogy, say that the girl or Israel that was coming out of uh, an abusive home, right? So she lived in Israel where she, Absolutely. Was, she was forced to do things she didn't want to do. She wasn't respected. There was no love relationship between her authority figures. We could say her evil, wicked step parents or whatever it was. No freedom. No freedom. There was no love. And she didn't understand because the type of love that was shown her in her home was not one that wooed her, right? It was it was a forced. Do you know what's amazing about this idea of of Israel coming out of an abusive situation is that one of the things that I've seen a lot in pastoral ministry is that women who have come out of abusive situations will often go back into those situations. Like they'll, they're, it's just, they have low self-esteem. They think they don't deserve better. And so they literally will go back into really bad, mm -hmm. loathsome situations. And we, we find Israel this, saying this. The they're saying, thing. why we wish we could be back in Egypt. Back in Egypt? Right. What? Don't you remember? And I've again in my pastoral ministry, I've experienced this where you just say, "Well, this is basically emotionally based trauma that have caused people to think so low of themselves, yeah. so poorly of themselves. They think they don't deserve better, and so they're going to go back on some sort of you know redemptive mission to try and, but it never works out. And what God says is, no." You're not lowly. You're a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a royal priesthood. You're going to be a special nation. He's casting this vision. Here. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. But I love this idea of them coming out of an abusive relationship. Yeah. And God is wooing them. Ah, that's really well, cool. And, and the issue, you know, the crossing of the Red Sea is wonderful because if you leave an abusive relationship, if you don't want to be there, especially... Um, your fear, I have a really good friend who was um, trafficked into sex, uh, the sex trafficking trade for a few years, and she um, is always afraid when she speaks. This is even in our area in St. Joseph, Michigan, and she's afraid when she speaks out in conferences uh, about social uh, sex trafficking of the policemen that might be there because many times they're in on it because they mm. benefit from it. And so they don't want you, and you could be um, somehow things could happen to you if you speak up. And so she's afraid to speak up. And so the, the point is this fear that even though we leave, there's still the Egyptians. They could still follow us. And in fact, they do, don't they? They follow. Wow. And the the parallel here could be that, um, you know, he's turned in. I, I don't want to say, you know, the boyfriend kills the step parents, but he turns them into the authority. So they're no longer a threat. Well, I mean, God did kill them. I mean, when right, they so came rebelliously after to pursue their 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 
victim, mm-hmm. victim slash, you know, girlfriend, illegitimate girlfriend, God said, yeah, no, this relationship is over. And a lot of times in abusive relationships, you have to have some kind of significant finality, not, mm-hmm. of course, always the death of that person, though that does sometimes occur. But like the authorities get involved. There's a restraining order put in place. You have to have a hard end to that. And that's what the Red Sea is. It's a hard end. That's totally in the rearview mirror. They're not coming after you. You are free. And I've said again and again that when God gets Israel to Sinai, what he's doing is, is he's saying, you're free. Now, this is how you live free. Mm-hmm. right? Because it's hard for slaves yeah. to suddenly be like, okay, now we're totally free people. The, the sort of PTSD the of that. So there's an exactly. owner's manual that God's going to give them on. And that's tonight's. Okay, so we'll I'm, get to that I'm going to touch on that, but we're not going to get big into okay. it. So what happens then is they have the song of deliverance, right? The Lord is, you know, a, a mighty warrior. This is Miriam and everybody on the other side of the, the uh, Red Sea. Yep. Right. And what's really significant about that is that. Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is that um, Israel is singing and it's kind of this first love, right? And this is what God says in Ezekiel um, 16. He recounts that original first love from which Israel had departed. And of course, it didn't take more than a few days, as we saw. Yeah, because I mean, they're in love here, clearly. They're like, just amazed by crazy, God's power. singing, dancing. They have been liberated. They have been free. He has become my salvation. He's my strength and my song. Um, and then, uh, let's see here, 15. I said that it's the first of said. Did I have that here marked? Mm. The first use of said. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it's in the second commandment. I'm not okay, saying gotcha. it there. Do you okay. see? No. Sorry, I think I made a mistake. No, no, I'm, I'm wrong. Uh, verse 13. So you in your mercy yeah. have let, that's the first use of hesed, hesed. loving kindness. That's in uh, Exodus. The second one is going to be in um, the giving of the law, second commandment. Interesting. So they're seeing this love, love of God. He, they have been redeemed. Um, and then in verse 13, um, the song says this, you have guided them into your strength, to your holy habitation, mm. right? You brought them home. You have brought them. And then verse 17 says, and you will bring them in and plant them. So establish them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So this is forecasting to a time in the, you know, who knows at that time, how are we good? No, you're fine. Uh, So this is looking forward to the time a sanctuary that the Lord's hands have established. So this is not an earthly sanctuary. Mm. But in order before we they could get there, God knew that they needed to have a little bit of a object lesson, a little, you know, you've seen those um, sanctuaries. You know, there's people that go around and, and they present and you can uh, actually in, um, we've been in uh, Florida where they have, you know, Disney World and other things. And there's one there that's the Holy Land experience. And you can go into the sanctuary and kind of see the different compartments and experience what that would have been like. And so that's kind of what God has to do. He has to give them a type. And so uh, Richard Davidson in the sanctuary class, he has this little, um, it's a hollow, um, it's a penguin. And it was given to him for his marriage. And they would fill it up with ice and then, you know, take it out. And the ice is this nice uh, ice structure. And they'd put it in the punch bowl. And it's a nice decorative thing that they would have. And so he, he brings it and he throws it around like a football in the classroom and people catch it. And his point is that the type that the sanctuary is that Moses is going to see when we get to... Um, uh, in, in the next few meetings, um, it's it's not the real thing. So what Israel is seeing and playing around with is not the actual sanctuary, but it's a type. It's like it's like the the hollow. So if I had my glove on, right, and you've never seen a hand, say you've never seen a hand, you don't know what a hand looks like, and somebody says, well, a hand looks something like this, and I 
show you my glove. Glove. And you're like, okay, well, it's kind of long and there's five little extensions. And then you're like, okay, well, I kind of, and it bends, you know, the, the glove bends. And then I take off or I, I put it in my hand and then I take it off and then you see the glove and you're like, oh, okay, well now we don't need the glove. Because so some people want to get rid of the, of the, the, what we call it, the object lesson or the, the educational device that it was because, well, we don't need it anymore. Now we have the reality that has come. The type has passed away. But I believe that in studying this and seeing what the, what it was meant to teach and some of the specific things that happened and the response of the Israelites and learning it, we can learn so much of ourselves. This is what chapter uh, 10 and first Corinthians says is that this has become an example for us on whom the age of the ends have come, the ends of the ages has come in order to understand the love of God and the provision of God uh, in forecasting uh, a man. And this is very interesting because I love when, the glove analogy. That's a great point. When he said, if you've never seen a hand, you would at least have some sense of what a hand looks like by looking at the glove. The sanctuary that God gave to Israel is the glove. Exactly. It's yeah. it's it's not exactly, but it gives you the general outline, shape, and purpose. Exactly. I like yeah. that. That's good. So um, the mountain of your inheritance. And so he's going to give them. Um, and one thing I didn't say, actually, in chapter three uh, is that it talks about the sanctuary there. So the sign, Moses asks for a sign. He says, well, how will I know? How do I know? How do I know that you're going to do He this? says, well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to bring Israel back to this mountain. Yes. Right. So the mountain of Horeb or the mountain of Sinai, they're both the same, and it's a peninsula, and so it goes by various names, but either Horeb or Sinai. And so when you come back to this mountain and serve me, right, there's a serving that needs to take place, which is the mission that's been given to Israel. So when you start to serve me, you will know that I am the Lord who sent you. And because why? Because they had been delivered. So they come now to the mountain, and now we're at... Um, Chapter, uh, so we've gone last night, we did 16, 17, 18, and 19. We're kind of going to look at this tonight, but we're going to look at it a little bit now in anticipation, just briefly to okay. kind of finish the analogy of, of the wedding relationship or the marriage. So three months after they left Egypt, they come uh, and they're on the mountain. And then the Lord calls Moses up to the mountain in the mm -hmm. wilderness. Uh, so Israel camped there and Moses went up to God. This is uh, verse three of chapter 19. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought yeah. you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a special treasure to me. For all the earth is mine. So above all people. So some people get a little bit confused when they're like, well, is Israel supposed to be like a special people? Like, in a haughty way or superior to them. But no, no, no. God says, everyone is my child. The whole earth is Amen. mine. But I'm going to make you work more. So mm. you're going to, so instead of being like, oh, well, we're, we're so good. We're just going to sit back on our laurels and soak in the glory of being special. He's saying, no, no, no. Now you have a job to do. Now you're going to sweat. This you is missional. This is I got, missional. I got work for you to do. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing I want to point out here is that it, it is conditional. So it's like every proposal. If somebody proposes Well, marriage, it says if. Right. It literally begins with if. Now, therefore, if you will. Yeah. I mean, so, they can opt out. So when you saw Violetta and you proposed to her and you said, if you will marry me, I will take you to the highest mountains. I will show you, you know, different worlds. We will go on a trip all throughout Australia, you know, but you don't have to say yes. You, you can definitely say no. And so it's not, it's something that just shows you a little bit. So he's saying, if you, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is the original kingdom manifesto that we're yeah, going to see now. In which God is He's saying, painting a picture. He's painting a picture of his love. And then the other thing here is he says, it's not just the if then, but he says, um, uh, 
if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now, it's really interesting because that there's actually no word for obey in, in the Hebrew. It's shamar. So the um, the the Shema, mm -hmm. in the, the Shema is where you get Shamar from. So in um, Deuteronomy 6, where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This here is Shema. And mm -hmm. Shema is, is treasure, keep. Uh, so when God says, keep my commandments, he doesn't mean like obey them or else. He's saying, treasure them. It's a mm -hmm. gift to beautiful, you. It's beautiful. a diamond. It's it's precious and holy. And if we, when you treasure something, you, you want to preserve it and you want to show it to people. It's like, oh, look at this. Don't you, you want to hold my treasure? Beautiful. Do you want to experience my treasure? Like David just took us to his house. He has the coolest house. And if you, <laughs> if you're friends with me on Instagram, I, I, I've been taking some pictures that I'm going to post, but when he brings us to his house, this is a beautiful treasure that he has. And I feel a connection to him and Violetta that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so this is the treasure. They have something God has placed in their hands. And now they're supposed to go to all the nations and share it with them. Bring them into this house, which is actually the sanctuary that will be constructed. Mm. Bring all the people into my house. For my house will be called a house of prayer for, for all, all people. people. Oh, I like that. So the first one is the proposal to covenant oneness, right? And that's Exodus 19, 3 through 6. The second one is the consecration. And this is a very short one where God says, again, Moses, go up. So I'm just tracing in my um, uh, in this study all the times that God says, come up, come up to the mountain. God is initiating a process by which he is bringing Israel closer into himself and equipping her. Wooing them increasingly to himself. Yes. And to it's a very romantic. Life. It is very, yeah. And this is- I've got a cool thing when we, okay. Anyway, I'll, I'll tell you about it either today or tonight, but it's very romantic way to, to look at the Ten Commandments. Oh, good. So anyway, keep going. I'm ready. Okay. So the second one is the one of consecration where the bride is making herself ready. She's supposed to go and, and he says, tell them to wash themselves, make themselves clean. And this was a time, Ellen White will talk about it tonight, that it was a time of soul searching, kind mm. of, um, it, you know, in the antitypical day of atonement, this is what they do. They kind of cleanse their hearts from sin. This is what we should be doing now, cleansing our hearts from sin and selfishness, allowing God to search our hearts and uh, preparing ourselves for the coming of the bridegroom. And in this particular case, it was um, uh, in three days he was going to come. Right. So that's kind of like the bride. She's getting her dress ready. She's, you know, getting whatever else she needs to get ready, but in order to see the groom. So chapter three is Mount Sinai's Ten Commandments. And this is the third meeting where Moses goes up to Sinai for a third time. And I call this the groom's vows because this is where God will speak. This is his promissory wedding ring that he wants to give and put into our minds and hearts. Mm. And so uh, one of the things that I love, and this is a quote from Ellen White that we're going to look at tonight, but after the thunder quiets, God speaks not alone in the awful majesty of the judge and lawgiver, but as the compassionate guardian of his people. Wow, beautiful. And so here there's two points in this. Is compassionate that guardian is such a cool way to say it because it's this really, like there's some tension in that juxtaposition, right? Like compassionate... Mm -hmm. That's soft, that's tender, that's accessible, that's, and then guardian is, hey, there's danger, you need to be protected. So compassionate guardian is super cool. Is intense, yeah. Because just compassionate is great, but the world is a war zone and Satan's out to get us and our own hearts, you know, are deceitful above all things. We need to be guarded, we need to be shielded and protected. Absolutely. That's Shamar, great. that's what God does. He he has compassionate his, guardian. Apple of, his, of, apple of his eye. Yep, compassionate guardian. So when one of the things that I love um, that was a revelation to me when I was doing my study is that Richard Davidson notes that the grammatical structure of the Decalogue can be read. Sorry, somebody said there that they thought you talked too fast and they're 
Like, <laughs> I don't talk too fast, and I, I don't want to mumble or speak over. No, you're doing great. Words, so um, it can be read as either a promise or as Correct. a commandment. So it's like two sides of the same coin, and you can focus. It's like the vision. Am I going to focus on this? It's both. It's both. But when you focus on it, first and foremost, as a commandment, you're going to lose the promissory aspect of it. And so in, the way, in terms of the commands, in terms of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. So one of the ways to okay, this is a great point that that Sylvia is making. When you read the commands, it can sound very "do not do this or else," mm -hmm. "do not" with this sort of threatening posture mm -hmm. and this really hierarchical top down. What what God is actually saying is, and I'll talk about this tonight. I think you no longer have to have other gods. Right. You no longer have to take my name in vain. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have to live that way anymore because now you're free. And when you're free, you have to learn how to live free. Mm -hmm. So think of them as promises rather than as strict commands or else. Mm -hmm. right? It's not that there's not some moral requirement there. Of course, God made us and he can di dictate the terms of our existence, but he doesn't do so in an autocratic or hierarchical way. He comes to us romantically to woo us, mm -hmm. and then invite us to see a bigger picture for ourselves, for our families, for our world, and to buy into what God has for us, because what God has for us is ultimately infinitely better than what we would have for ourselves. Absolutely. I love that. So uh, so here, just in, in the structure, is that the low, so that means no, plus the imperfect in commandments 1 through 3 and 6 through 10 can be translated either as a negative prohibition or as an emphatic promise. Correct. And the fourth, and you the fifth, will no longer. Right. You will no longer because you don't. You won't want to. Yeah. You don't need that anymore. You won't need that anymore. Okay. Just use the illustration of the abusive relationship. Mm. So, so if you have come out of an abusive relationship and you have come into a relationship where you really, this person's amazing and they love you and you love them and your trust is deepening and your connection is deepening and your love is deepening, you don't have to be told, hey. Don't go back to that guy. Don't go back to that knucklehead. Don't right. go back to that abuser. Because you would say, why would I go back? Yeah. I'm totally in love. I, I've been swept off my feet. This is the best possible relationship, and it's improving daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly. Right. So see the commands like that. Not as you'd better not, mm -hmm. but more, you don't have to live like that anymore. Mm -hmm. You're Absolutely. free. Yep. I, I restate them down here, and that's exactly the point that I make. So in the fourth and fifth commandments, are not given in the expected imperative, but the in the infinitive absolute. And if you if you've studied um, Hebrew, this would make more sense to you. But basically, uh, it means that it's an emphatic promise once again. Ellen White likewise views both the law views the laws both as loving commands and gracious promises. Right. She says the Ten Commandments are ten promises. There is not one negative in that law, although it may appear that she says there is not no. one negative in that law, even though it may appear that way. This is mind blowing because Ellen White was not a Hebrew scholar. Yeah. How does exactly. she know? How does she know? No, good point. Right. Like, like Ellen White didn't take a day of Hebrew in her life, right? Like she's not a Hebrew scholar. And yet right. she's saying here something that frankly, and this is one of the things that I love about Ellen White. It's one of the things that gives me a lot of confidence in her ministry. She says things that are theologically mm -hmm. risky, like things that people could come along and say, hey, that wasn't true what she said mm -hmm. there. She doesn't have this like in-depth, you know, PhD level theological education. She just says things like, there is not a negative in the Ten Commandments, even though it might look at it. And then decades later, Hebrew scholars take a look at the actual construction and language of the Ten Commandments and say, you know what? This is promissory, mm -hmm. not pr prohibitive. Exactly. 
It's amazing. It's just incredible. I love it. That reveals the inspiration that she was able to have a sense of what it was. She was an avid student of scripture. I mean, above and beyond. I'm so glad you said that. Yes. Because it doesn't require supernatural revelation to know this. Exactly. She had just, she had so bathed her mind in the story, Mm -hmm. in the text, that she said, well, what's going on here? This is a wooing. This is a, this isn't negative. This is positive. Right. Right. This is an invitation. This is. So uh, just, just in line with that, an aside, um, I wrote my master's thesis comparing Paradise Lost, John Milton's Paradise Lost with Paradise Regained, specifically the three days war in heaven and the three temptations uh, in Paradise Regained, which is the temptation scene. Right. So, um, and it was just fascinating as I'm reading him to see the insights that he has into the nature of man, John Milton into into the character of Satan and how the war happened. And it was just mind blowing to see. And he does have in the traditional sense of the muses where he prays before each section for a blessing to come upon him, to give him wisdom and insight into what happened. Um, And he was, he wrote this. And I mentioned this when we did DA with DA last time on Calvary is that he wrote a De Doctrina Christiana. So it's a Christian doctrine of about 900 pages. And he said, I'm not going to use any of the church fathers. I'm not going to use any other authority except scripture. And he believes also, which was very anathema in that day, it was very looked down upon uh, in soul sleep, that the mm. soul, that there's a permanent destruction. There is no eternal soul that goes. He, he, he st- So this is what happens well. when you stick to scripture. <laughs> Amen. And uh, come on now. So, okay. So we have the 10 promises. Yep. 10 promises. And I love it. that's how union happens. The oh, charter is- of freedom. This is one of my favorite quotes from Ellen White okay. that I've memorized. The creative energy that called the worlds into existence is, is in found the in the word, word of God. God. This word creates this word. Now, now that I'm looking at the screen after this word imparts power. It begets life. Every command is a promise accepted by the will received into, into the, the soul. soul. It brings with it the life of the infinite one. It restores the nature and recreates the soul into the image of God. And so by having an attitude of looking at the commandments, from a perspective of promise, that promise, because to whom have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having yeah, escaped the corruption. It. I'm with you. So by uh, this change in our perception of the commandments, we're able to behold God as this loving husband who's promising us so much. Beautiful. Uh, now, this is just my rewriting of the Ten Commandments. So the prologue, because I have lovingly redeemed you to myself, I promise you, I promise you will, number one, know that I, Yahweh, am the only God who can save. Two, love and honor your devoted husband, God. Reverence my name as your husband, God, who is jealous for your love. Remember the Sabbath, and I call this in my, I call it the weekly versary. So instead of an anniversary where you just celebrate. Your oh, I like that. The weekly versary. Oh, ah, that's good. Versary. And share it with others. Respect, number five, your parents and all authority. Promote life. This instead of do not kill, promote life. Yeah, promote life. life. I love it. And well-being of everyone around you. Number seven, cherish faithfulness in marriage and purity in all your relationships. Beautiful. Eight, seek and advance only the truth instead of do not lie. Right. Nine, respect the property of others and generously share what you own. And ten, ten, be content, grateful for all that I have given you. So instead of oh, that's a beautiful paraphrase of the Ten Commandments. Well done. So that's three, and we're we're. I think your phone's going to run out. So you said you we probably have, got. Do how much? Probably time? got fifteen minutes, maybe twenty. Okay, so um, basically, the fourth commandment is where the covenant is sealed. So that's where we had the mishpatim. We're going to look at that tonight. So I'm not going to go into too okay. much detail. But Israel hears this, and she says, "All that the Lord has said, we will do." Sounds good. She's in. She's in, and so 
There's um, a blood of the sacrifice, right? There's the, the there's a book that's written. The ratification. The covenant vows. It's written in a book, and so this is God's answer to how shall we live, right? This is the 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 owner's manual for abundant life that's given to the nation. I and like that. Uh, so this is the part two of the the two vows: um, keep myself only unto you, um, to love, honor, and obey. The fifth mountain is the covenant eating. This is chapter twenty four, verses nine through. 11 is where the elders go up and have the meal the 70 elders have the meal and it's so, so funny that you say this i've always thought of that as like a wedding reception really yeah totally it is it is it's a it's i say it because after we have a covenant think about what we do at a, at a wedding mm-hmm. we, we you have the vows everybody claps you have the kiss you have the promise you have the ring and then what do we do we sit Celebrate. down and eat yeah we celebrate we share a meal yeah. and the elders go up into the presence of yahweh in exodus 24 and they share a meal. Exactly. Jesus, and, they see God. and then Jesus enters into the new covenant with his disciples in the upper room. And what do they do? Eat they a share a meal. Yep, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And Which is why it's so important that Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll hear, I'll come in and we'll share a meal. Exactly. So what? I, so this is my MA thesis. For my PhD, I'm using this as a type of what spirituality is. So this becomes a typological structure of spirituality. And this is Israel. Out of Israel, I have called my son. But then Christ becomes the new Israel. He's the actual Israel. So he's Amen. He's the true son of God, the one who fulfills all the promises. And so these seven stages, I've outlined them in the book of Matthew. I found uh, pretty much all of them in the book of Matthew. And most of them are in mountains, like the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, yeah, the giving of the law on, on Mount of Blessing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I gave, I worked on this and I gave, I did it for a class in Matthew. And then I gave it to my um, to Davidson to see because he's the typology guy. He did his research on what typology is and right. establishing parameters and uh and he said it it, it flies so um that's one of the things that i'm working on and he also, signed off on it he signed off so sinai chapter six is where moses goes up to god and he says and i'm, I'm just going to go there briefly so i think that's 25 yeah 25 8 yeah this is beautiful I, it's funny i knew i haven't even looked at this and i knew this is what you were going to say oh yeah it makes because so much sense because you're a student of scripture and so well versed and it makes sense right so um he asked for an offering to build a, ta- a, ta- a tabernacle, right? To build a sanctuary. Yeah. So chapter 8 says, and let them make verse me... Verse 8. Sorry. 25, 8. 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This is what Jesus' high priestly prayer is. The climax, the end, that they may dwell with me, be with me where I am, and behold my glory. Let them dwell uh, with me, that I may dwell among them according to all that I have shown you. The pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the furnishings, just so you shall make it. This and, is your glove point from earlier. Yeah. That's a pattern. Exactly. Right. It's not, this isn't the thing. This is the model or the pattern or the miniature of the thing. To the have thing on, we've already talked about was in heaven. Yeah. Where there was doxology before there was soteriology. And that's the point in Hebrews chapter eight. This Correct. is the main point of the things that we are Correct. saying. There is a sanctuary in heaven uh, made by heavenly hands. Okay, so this is the home, basically. So this is the home in which Israel and God will now come together. Of course, there's a a priestly service, so not every single person goes into the most holy place where God's presence is. But they do go in by representation. They go by representation, and God has come down from the top of the mountain that only Moses could ascend. He now condescends to come down and dwell with them. Um, I heard Davidson say years ago when I heard him preaching a sermon, probably 10 years ago, he made this great point about how God's original invitation was for all of Israel. Now, of course, this was a logistical impossibility, but the idea was is that God would have been happy for all of Israel to come to the top of the mountain. Yeah. The only reason that it ended up being only Moses that went up 
was that the others were, we're like, afraid. uh, yeah, we're afraid, and you talk to God and then come talk to us. Yeah, and God's I, like, okay. I, I have a section on that also. That's a great I, point, though. Yeah. Because it can look like, maybe favoritism is the wrong word, but it, it can look like an unnecessary accommodation. What God was trying to do, in other words, let's say it this way. Every Israelite could have had the same level of connection and intimacy with God that Moses had. Mm -hmm. They just didn't avail themselves of the opportunity. God wasn't playing favorites. They were too afraid. And that's, I think, because that has to do with part of the consecration. They weren't prepared. This is why I discussed this with uh, Richard Davidson, because he he's the one that kind of pushed me on that. And so I included it, because a lot of people say, well, no, they weren't supposed to ascend. They were supposed to put guards around the mountains so that nobody would ascend. But actually, the guards were to prevent during those three days of consecration. Nobody was supposed to go up during those three days. But after the three days, that was a time that they were all supposed to come up. And if you look, um, so let's turn again. So I've got a lot of people here asking if you can, um, they want to get access to your paraphrase of the Ten Commandments. So oh, sure. can you uh, just text that to me or email yeah. that to me? You put it on your Instagram account. I'll put it on my Instagram account as well okay. so that you can see it. That'll be great. Yeah, so... Um, so the trumpet sounded. Actually, she brings it out. We'll talk about it tonight because she brings it out in the text. I, it's not so much here. You can definitely get it from scripture, but she makes a clear point of that uh, in tonight's reading. It's amazing how much what you're talking about today, everything that you're talking about today, is going to set up what we talk about tonight and even tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Great. Well, I'm going to touch on that next. So it's almost like it was providential for you to be here this weekend. And that's because you told me to talk about like the ceremonial <laughs> law and some other things. And I thought, well, this kind of covers what we're talking about. No, this is the sweet spot. I love it. Valentine's Day. Um, so wait, I'm so, over here. So God says to them, we're going to make a house. Yes. We're going to make a house. And this is going to be the house where we're going to live. This is, this and is our house. And everything has a purpose. Like John Luke and I, we, we built the house that we're living in right now. And we figured out like, how do we want to interact? How do we want to live? And when we bring people into our home, how do we want them to feel? Like one of the things we want to do is have a low ceiling. We didn't want to have a very high ceiling because we, we, we wanted to, and we do have higher ceilings, but the roof, the roof pitch, we didn't want it to be super high because a lot of the houses, there's one in our neighborhood. It looks like a castle. It's just so high and it's kind of awe-inspiring, but intimidating. And we wanted it to be cozy and kind of just, so, um, so God has an idea for how he wants his house for every uh, article of furniture that's in there to make a point, to have an object lesson, to point to himself. And you guys all need to get, it actually came out this week, Song for the Sanctuary, Richard Davidson's study of um, the sanctuary doctrine. Oh, it just came out this week. just came out only on Kindle. So the it's about a thousand pages. So you need to get your reading glasses on. Um, so basically, um, what were we talking about here? The house, making the house in such a yeah, way that so it's communicating he something. He goes through every single article that's, that's a beautiful way to think about Christologically it. centered and basically that's the whole structure of the sanctuary covenant structure is Christological and he brings that up um it's all got Jesus at the center absolutely so after that you know what happens right so we're going to cover this tomorrow okay. idolatry at Sinai Moses is up there God's like okay we're done with the architectural plans but the people that you brought out of Egypt are you know, they've built an idol, they're worshiping to it, they've just committed adultery right after promising. It's been like 40 days, right? Moses is up there for 40 days. And they're like, well, we don't know about this man. I mean, this man, who is this man? We're, let's just build it. And so God mm. is so heartbroken. And we're going to cover that on Sunday. So I'm not going to go into too much detail, but this is like the adultery. So how would you like it if you marry someone? Right. And a month after. Yeah, like just after the honeymoon. Somebody comes and tells you, oh, actually, you know, here's some pictures, incriminating pictures of your loved one with um, your bride <laughs> with somebody else, right? Really incriminating pictures. And Moses Well, if you're a jealous spouse, just like God <laughs> is a jealous God, you're going to be unhappy. 
God is very unhappy. He says, let me alone that my anger may burn and I can figure out what to do with them, right? He's like putting them on timeout. And Moses, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it because he comes down with the, the, he still has them. And as soon as he sees it, it's worse than he can even imagine. And he just throws them down and and all of a sudden the covenant's broken. So the next two mountains. And it was broken like literally because he throws the tablets down and it's a symbol that, okay, the marriage is off. It's over. Exactly. It's over. And uh, now the next two meetings, I don't have them as part of the structure because there is no covenant now. There's no sanctuary yet. And now there can't be one because there's no covenant. Right. Until there's been some kind of, of intercession or remediation. And Ellen White, what I love, she'll say that God's anger was meant, Moses saw that there was something in it that was meant to beckon uh, reappellation. So come and appeal to me. There is there's, you know, when you've had a fight with somebody, sometimes you're like, leave me alone. Just just go away. Just go away. The pain is too much. And there's no way in which you can formalize your words or, or express your emotions and your thoughts into words. And you just have so much emotion that you just need to be alone and gather your thoughts and be able to talk at a different time. But it's not that you want to sever the relationship. Don't you want the person to come back and to to seek you out, to yeah. seek reconciliation. Yeah, that's and so a this point. is this is what Moses is doing or what God is doing with Moses. And so finally. Uh, in chapter 33. Um, this is the last the encounter? Promise, this is, well, no, then I'm going to just finalize with the, when God comes down is the, the seventh mountain where the mountain actually comes down. So this okay, is the, gotcha. this is the last one that actually takes place on the mountain. And this is so beautiful. This is where Moses says, show me, show me glory. what you're like. Show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Mm. And the goodness of God is what we said at the very beginning, which is what we have seen in God through the wilderness experience that we discussed last night, is that he is compassionate and tender and forgiving over and over. He has empathy. Mm. And um, so we're going to cover that. So I'm not going to go too much into detail, but I'm just going to finish now in chapter seven. Okay. Um, When, sorry, chapter 40. So after the... um, the reinstitution of the sanctuary covenant structure, they build this um, just as God has uh, expected or, or required. They build this beautiful tabernacle. Tabernacle that's thirty-nine verses. This is the last verse. 32. This is the last chapter of Exodus. Right. So the work is completed according to all that the Lord had commanded. Verse forty-two. So the children of Israel did all the work, um, and Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it as what the Lord verse had commanded. You? Oh, the last 30. Sorry, oh, you're 42. in you're in 39, 42. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So finally it's done. And then there's an anointing that takes place. Right. And uh, everything is put into the sanctuary. And then finally, uh, verse 34, then the cloud that has been leading them, the cloud of glory. This is 40, 34. Presence. This is chapter 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. That sounds very Ezekiel 16, doesn't it? Yes. I will cover you. I will cover you. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And uh, so now I'm just going to read, this is uh, the concluding paragraph or two of my thesis, and it's just kind of wrapping things up. You're going to read it to us. I'm just going to read it to you. I'm ready. Go. The entire covenant marriage development, though tumultuously and nearly terminated, uh, though tumultuous and nearly terminated, has now reached its long-awaited conclusion. Having completed their part in the construction of the sanctuary, Israel stands awaiting God's approval. This is what we saw in chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Mm. And Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God has inaugurated the seventh and final mountaintop meeting. The glory of this meeting centers on the astounding reality that God has, 
symbolically, brought the mountain itself, his holy sanctuary, down to the Israelite nation. Awesome. In a very real sense, Emmanuel, God with us, has come down to them, prefiguring the condescension and incarnation of Christ. Mm, love that. Sinai has, in a sense, become a movable mountain in the midst of the Israelite camp, announcing to all nations the arrival of Israel's God. Beautiful. For better or for worse, Yahweh Elohim will be their husband. And this is all experienced in terms of glory and fire. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This connection between glory and fire and God's covenant love is beautifully highlighted in Song of Solomon uh, chapter 8, verse 6. So this, this is the highlight from which... Uh, Richard Davidson's book, Flame of Yahweh, is taken. It's taken from Solomon, which is uh, Songs of Love. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart. I love this verse. As a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The, the very, very flame, flame of, of Yahweh. Yahweh. Mm. Davidson convincingly argues that while the immediate context of this passage, the wedding song of Solomon, serves to sanctify human love and sexuality, it typologically points beyond itself to the divine lover. Beautiful. In Beautiful. this we note the burning, jealous love of God, who through the incarnate Son would descend even to the grave, mm. that through death he might eternally rescue his adulterous wife. I love, just pause there. I have often, because I preach on this when I preach at weddings, mm. and I say that Solomon said that love is as strong as death, and Jesus showed us that love is even stronger than death. Yes. Yes, Woo, come I on love now. that. Um, yet before this occurs, so that so before so what, where was I? Um, the burning jealous love of God. Right. Before this occurs, he prefigures it through the sanctuary. So before Christ comes, it's prefigured through the sanctuary covenant marriage. We saw the flame of Yahweh first in the burning bush when God Ooh, revealed like that. His temporal being and missionary heart, eager to save all. Beautiful. The flame of Yahweh was noted again when God descended to speak His covenant for the first time to His betrothed Israel in terms that expressed the justice and mercy of his husband love. Mm. The Lord came down from Sinai. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Yes, he loves his people. This is Deuteronomy 33, 1 through 3. The flame of Yahweh was again seen blazing on Mount Sinai when God revealed the sanctuary redemption plan to mm. Moses, plans that anticipated God's incarnation, death, and heavenly ministry. And the flame of Yahweh, the pronouncement of his very name as the long-suffering husband, was gloriously revealed and his merciful forgiveness to his adulterous bride in Exodus 34. Now the fire is ablaze on the sanctuary altar, and God's Shekinah glory fills the temple. With deep emotion, the people beheld the token that the work of their hands was accepted. Wow. There were no loud demonstrations of rejoicing. A solemn awe rested upon all. But the gladness of their hearts welled up in tears of joy, and they murmured low, earnest words of gratitude that God had condescended to abide. I'm getting emotional. I know. I'm just like, I, this is so romantic well, this, this, and beautiful. I just love it. Th that's Ellen White, though, that particular Yeah, of course. Sentence. No, I, I, it's got to be. The God writing is so oh, good. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't know it was Ellen White. And I was like, man, she's Sophie a great good. writer. Such a good writer. Not quite like Ellen White. But still, um, very yeah. good. This is beautiful. So, yeah. So, earnest words of gratitude that God had condescended to abide with him. God's glory confirmed his approval and tacitly sealed their work as being very good. God's presence also fulfilled his promise of rest, which the nation was seeking, and assured mm. them that they would indeed be his treasured possession, drawing all nations to him. The sanctuary covenant structure is now complete. The God who reveals himself in time and relationships 
has condescended to rescue an adulterous Ooh, nation hallelujah. and reinstate them as his forgiven and, and precious, precious bride, bride, his partner in mission to reach and liberate an enslaved world. Beautiful. Sylvia, that is amazing. That is so beautiful. We hope this session was a giant blessing to you. By the way, in many ways, this supplemental session is well and truly a supplemental session because it sets up tonight's presentation. Yes. Uh, which is that Israel receives a lot. We're going to be talking again and again tonight about yeah. today's session. Revisiting. And I'll share with you a couple things that I think are so incredible in the actual Ten Commandments. We'll make sure that in our Instagram feed tomorrow, we give you uh, Sylvia's um, paraphrase mm -hmm. of the Ten Commandments. And then we're going to be referring to this again tomorrow as well. That's right. So remember, tonight, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, we'll be back here same time, same place. And then again, tomorrow, uh, rather than being in the evening, we'll be at 1 p.m. Uh, for tomorrow's chapter. I'll remind you of that. Sylvia, that was absolutely beautiful. I was looking at so many. Love you, Sylvia. Oh, look at what Jennifer says. Love Aww. you, Sylvia. Love you, Jennifer. See, I only have the most amazing guests. <laughs> One of my guests appreciating the other guest, and I know you appreciate Jennifer. Oh, so I love Jennifer. We hope that was a giant blessing, everybody. Naomi, you're welcome. We'll see you in just a few hours, and uh, this is so thrilling. Um, I just want to go give my wife a giant hug and a kiss and, <laughs> and just be reminded how blessed we are that God has given us the gift of marriage, the gift of salvation, the mm. gift of, of the Old Testament, the gift of the book of Exodus. Amen. Woo! Amen. Um, uh, did I, I think I opened. Yeah, you did. You closed. Okay. Gracious Father, Lord, you are beyond our understanding. How mm. can you, the great creator, the great sovereign of the cosmos, mm. do such a thing to take this adulterous nation and continue to work over and over and over in the forgiving love. Hallelujah. Lord, help us to have that spirit. Help us to reflect your image by being such love-filled, forgiving people mm. who just want to better the world around them, to who want to share this flame, this flame of love, this flame that comes only from you, Lord. Only you can ignite this in us. We are so selfish, so cold. And, and Lord, mm. each day we need your spirit to come Amen. in and fill us anew and give us the ability to, to pour into one another and to continue to grow as a community of faith. And so this is my prayer for each person listening that whatever uh, their love lacks may be, we all, um, no one, Lord, loves us like you do. We all mm. sense this, this lack. And Lord, may we go to you. May we be filled with your love and then may we pour into others. And in that way, just sense your um, your covenant love, your wonderful dwelling with us and in us and for the whole world, Lord. We claim this mission. We claim your promise of abiding love. And Lord, we ask that you be with us tonight as we continue Amen. to unpack uh, the promises that you have given us in the book of Exodus, that we may continue to behold new and wonderful works in your law. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.